1 Samuel chapter number 18 this morning. We preached out of this passage on Wednesday night, or the passage just adjacent to it, about David behaving himself wisely. I think we ought to guard our testimonies, don't you? Oh, how easy it is to lose our testimony. We can in a moment lose something that it's taken us years to build in the eyes and mind of a lost person. We ought to guard our testimony. This morning, I want us to look at the first four verses of 1 Samuel chapter number 18. And I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on the love of God. We get accused often, us Bible preachers, of not preaching enough on the love of God. Let me say this, you'll never understand how much God loves you until you understand how much God hates sin. The measure through which God expressed His love to us was the cross of Calvary. Uh, The book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you say, what does that word commendeth mean? Uh, Well, that word commendeth, you've seen it used in other ways. You've seen it used in the word commendation. Uh, You've heard people talk about maybe a a military award or commendation. And that is uh, the government trying to express its adoration for that person based upon a deed that they have accomplished. Now, I'm thankful that Calvary wasn't about anything that I've accomplished. But God looks at me, and because of Calvary, He can pin the righteousness of God upon a filthy, rotten sinner such as you and I. God commendeth His love. He commits it to us. He manifests it to us. The love of God has been manifested already. Now, God, God shows me He loves me every day, but God has already showed me He loved me in the greatest way that anyone could ever imagine. In fact, it's a love that's grander than the love that human instrumentality can show. The Bible says in, in John fifteen thirteen. I'll get to preaching here in just a minute. John fifteen thirteen says this. Man, I've heard people quote this talking about the love of God. It says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, I've heard people quote that and talk about the love of God. That's not the love of God. The Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this. When Christ came to this earth, the Bible says, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, is what the angel said, for He shall die for His people. And as a man, Christ died for the nation of Israel. But as the Son of God, He died for His enemies. He died for you and I in our lost condition. Hey, the greatest love that a man can have is to love somebody that will love him back. The love that God showed to you and me was He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we wouldn't love Him. He loved us when there was nothing about us that was worth loving. He loved us anyway. That's grace this morning, friend. That's the grace of God manifest towards fallen man. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll, we'll preach on that in a second. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter number 18 this morning. And uh, let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would let him go no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Let's read verse 3 once more. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, the liberty, the freedom 
to gather in your house with your people, with your word, with your spirit, and with your presence this morning. We pray that you'd speak to each heart in a particular way. Lord, we didn't just come here to have an experience this morning. We came here to meet with you, that you might examine us and speak to our hearts. Through your precious word, reveal to us areas of our life where we might draw closer to thee. Lord, I pray if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone, that they'd see your love this morning. Oh, Lord, it was your love that could do what your law never could. We pray that you would speak to hearts this morning in a way that glorify your Son. Lord, we love you this morning. Teach us to love you more. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're very early in the life of a young man by the name of David. Now, when I say the name of David, everybody knows who I'm talking about. Everybody knows, for the most part, that we're talking about the young Hebrew shepherd boy who God used to slay the giant. We know that we're talking about the sweet psalmist of Israel, the the shepherd king of the nation of God. But at this point in the life of David, he's living in obscurity. He has slain the giant. Uh, He has been brought into some accolade from that. But now we find out, as we said on Wednesday night, now we find out whether David is just a one-hit wonder or not. Was this just a fluke in the life of David, or is God really with him? And uh, by all accounts and purposes, we have every reason to believe that David should have been shunned from the royal court. Don't you believe that this morning? Samuel had taken the horn that God had commanded him to, filled with oil, had anointed over the head of young David, and had proclaimed him to be the rightful rightful king and the proper heir to the throne of the nation of Israel. But now David has been adopted into the court of Saul. I do not know this, but I have my suspicions, amen. There's sometimes when you're reading the Word of God, you get suspicions about it. And I have my suspicion that Saul was doing his best to try uh, to bring David into the court with the purpose of appeasing him of pleasing him, of satisfying him, so that he would not pursue the throne. Little did Saul know that a relationship would be formed through this action that would be perpetual through the life of David and would actually save David from the hand of Saul on more than one occasion. The Bible speaks several times about the friendship between Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David, the young king. The Bible tells us that the love that they had one for another was passing the love of women. And you say, preacher, well, what does that mean? I know there's some of carnal mentality that have tried to make that into an illicit and Lord relationship. You've got to have some kind of carnal mind to believe that. Amen. You've got, I mean, the folks that believe that are the folks that don't believe the Bible anyway. Amen. What it means is this. Who, who can speak of a greater love than the love that a mother has for her child? Yet the Bible says that the love of Jonathan surpassed that love. Who can think of the greater love that a person has than for their spouse, than for their loved one? Some of you are, are, are married and you're still happy about it. Amen? A few of you. And you know what that, that love is. You'd do anything for that person. The Bible tells us that Jonathan had a love that ran deeper and was stronger than even that hallowed relationship. You know, when I, when I read about Jonathan and David in this passage, I can't help, I, I've got, a, I've got a typology mind. Does that make sense? I mean, I, and it gets me in trouble sometimes. I mean, anything I read in the Bible, I, I'm looking to see what it means. I mean, I, I know what it means, but I'm looking for a picture. 
Harold Sattler once said this, it's always stuck with me. He said, look for Jesus on every page and you'll find Him. He said, if you miss Him on one page, go to the next page, you'll find Him twice. Sometimes you see Him and it's plain and it's bold. You see Him in Isaac being laid upon the altar. You see Him in Adam tasting death for the redemption of His bride. Sometimes it's bold, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes you'd have to try to miss it to miss it. And then sometimes, like the little girl that views her bridegroom in the book of Song of Solomon, you just kind of see him through the lattice work. Sometimes it's explicit, and then sometimes it's a little implicit. And as I read this passage, I, I look at David, and I know we're accustomed to seeing David on sort of a pedestal. I mean, you're either preaching one or two types of sermons about David. I'm sharing some preacher truth with you, okay? You're, you're always either preaching a good sermon about him or a bad sermon about him. Because that's the only two kind of sermons you ever preach about David. He's either slaying the giant or he's slaying Uriah. I mean, one of the two. But when I see David in this passage, I don't just see David. In a lot of ways, I see a picture of myself before I knew the Lord. I see a picture of the lost sinner in his helplessness, in his insignificance. When I see Jonathan, I don't just see the son of Saul and the father of Mephibosheth. I don't just see what all, uh, all practical intents and purposes would believe to be the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. I see a young man that's destined for the throne, but chooses instead to crown another. I see in Jonathan a picture of my Lord Jesus Christ. Can I say that, man, I mean, there, there's, there's love that we can experience in this world. I, 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 as a father, and I'm a young father, and, and as a young father, everybody told me, and, I, and I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of got sick of hearing it. Any of you that have just had kids recently, you know what I'm talking about. You kind of got, it's not that you didn't believe it, you just got sick of hearing it. Whenever, whenever my wife was, was pregnant, we were having uh, LB, or she was had. I didn't have him, she had him. People would always say to us, they'd always say, oh, you don't know love yet. And I would always say, well, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. They'd say, no, 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 you don't know what I mean. Well, I know, I know I don't know what you mean, but I do know what you mean. And they'd say it all the time. And it's not that I didn't believe them, it's just you could only hear it so many times before you want to choke someone, amen? I believed them, but there was nothing I could do about it except wait and experience what that love was like. And sure enough, I, I remember Brother Kerry. He, I, I, man, I'm always talking about Kerry from the pulpit, aren't I? <laughs> I remember Brother Kerry told me right before we had Lawrence, uh, not me and him, me and Leah, uh, that he, he told me, I, I said, what was it like when, when Levi was born? He said, man, he said, I'm going to be honest with you, you feel some weird stuff. And I and I looked at him, I said, what do you mean feel weird stuff? I don't know what to expect. I ain't never had a baby before. He said, I mean, you just feel some weird emotions. He said, I mean, it's just like a flood when that baby is born of emotions that pour into your heart. He said, I, I can't explain it. You'll just have to see what it's like. And I thought, man, I don't know. You're just a wimp or something, you know. <laughs> sure enough, man, I, I remember there in that delivery room, I, I remember, you know the thing that got me? When that doctor said, look at that head full of hair. And man, it was like God just opened up a pitcher and poured it in my heart. Man, what a love that is to love your child. What a love that is to hold that baby in your arms and know that you're responsible for them. But to know that for them and in that moment, you're their whole world. 
in the same way, the love that you have for your, your bride, or if you're a woman, for your husband, I hope. The love that you have for your spouse. I mean, what love could surpass that? Surely no human mind could fathom a love grander than the love shared between a husband and a wife. It's so grand, it's so beautiful, that God even uses it as a picture of the love that Christ has for the church. All that in Ephesians chapter 5. If you read it carefully, in Ephesians chapter 5, all, all, all the marriage counseling verses, you know what I mean, all of them at the end of them, Paul says, but I speak a mystery unto you. He says, nevertheless, let, let the husband love his wife and see that she, she reverence him. Paul's not saying, just X out everything I said concerning the home. What he's saying is this is a grander love that I'm speaking about. He says, I speak concerning a mystery of Christ and the church. The love between a husband and a wife, so pure, so hallowed, so God-honored and sanctioned that it's used as a picture of the love that Christ has for His church. And yet when the Word of God points to love, there is the relationship, there is the dynamic. Listen carefully. There is the dynamic of the fatherhood of God and the sonship of those that have been born into the family of God. Aren't you thankful that He's our Father, that we're His child? There is the dynamic that Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. I mean, you read your, you, you throw a rock at your Bible and a verse will fall out showing you that. All through the Word of God, it's pictured the relationship between Christ and the church, that between the bridegroom and the bride. What a beautiful picture that is. And yet when God chooses to define what love is, He does not point to the love between the church and Christ. He does not point to the love between the Father and the Son. But the Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but of everlasting life. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. In other words, God didn't start loving you when you joined an independent Baptist church. God didn't start loving you when you went out and bought a King James Bible. God didn't start loving you when, you when you got your hair fixed right or when you got your clothes straightened up. God loved you before there's anything that the world or the church would have seen as being lovable. God loved you before you could do anything for Him. I still can't do much for Him. And I see in this relationship, this love, this friendship between Jonathan and David, I see a picture of the love that Christ has for the lost sin. Let me just share you a few thoughts with you and we'll go to the house. I want you to look with me. You know, the Bible, the, the name Jonathan literally means given of Jehovah. In other words, Jonathan was seen as the gift of God to David. Can I say this? That by his very name, he's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the gift of God to you and I. Christ is, and by the way, it's, it's not the payment of God to you and I. Christ is the gift of God to you and I. It's not the payment for you getting baptized. It's not the payment for you working hard. It's not the payment for you joining a church. He is the gift of God to you and I. And so I want us to notice these three things. If you won't help me preach, it's going to go a lot longer. Amen? I want you to notice, look at verse number 1. I want to say first off that this was an uncomplicated love. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, "...and it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul..." that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
I don't know about you, but usually when we talk about someone or something that we love, we try to convey the value that we see in that which we're speaking about. When we try to talk about someone that we love, someone that's been a friend to us, we talk about the things that they've done for us. When we try to talk about an item or an object that we love dearly, we talk about the things that it can do or the value that it has. But as we see in verse number 1, there is nothing about the life of David or about the person of David that is pointed to as being a motivation for the love that Jonathan has for him. This love was not based upon David or based upon his person or based upon his ability. It was a purely uncomplicated love. Can I just say this morning, I'm glad that the love that God has for you and I is not based upon our goodness or based upon our righteousness. Now you say, oh, preacher, this is the A's and B's and C's. Well, sometimes we need to get back to the first of the alphabet because sometimes we miss this thing and we get to thinking that we've earned God's love pretty good. Uh, you know, the book of Galatians, we spent 12 weeks that I just talked about, and I was preaching on it in Sunday school. Maybe I'll just preach on it for a second right now. The, the two grand heresies in the book of Galatians that Paul was trying to eradicate was this, that you had to work to be saved and that you had to work to stay saved. Uh, the Judaizers came into the church of Galatia and taught two things. One, that you had to be circumcised to be born again. And two, that you had to keep the Old Testament law in order to stay saved. Let me say this. As independent fundamental Baptists, we have got a pretty good handle on point number one. In fact, I don't know very many churches that would preach, that, that would claim to be Baptist, that would claim to, uh, to be fundamental, that would claim to believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God and the preservation of the King James. I don't know very many that would tell you that you have to work to be saved. Well, I'm sure there's some out there, but most of them would preach salvation by grace plus nothing minus nothing. Let me tell you something, friend. This point number two, we're letting it slip. We're getting this notion and this attitude in a lot of our churches that if we part our hair just right, if we talk just right, if we walk the walk, if we talk the talk in such a way, somehow that makes us more of a Christian than the person sitting next to us on the pew. Can I remind you something? I understand, friend, I understand uh, that, that saving faith is always accompanied by work. I understand when God saves a man that God changes a man. I understand that there's some living for God and that there's some not living for God. But don't you think for one moment that your status as a born-again, blood-washed child of God has anything to do with anything you've ever done, anything you will do, anything you hope to do, anything you plan to do? The truth of the matter is God saved you by grace. He keeps you by grace. It's an uncomplicated love. It's not based upon your righteousness, not based upon your dress code, not based upon your standards, not based upon the Bible uh, that you carry. I mean, hey, you know where I stand. You know where I stand. You, You know what I believe. I'm just merely saying those things aren't what makes you born again. They're not what makes you born again. This was an uncomplicated. It had nothing to do with David. It had everything to do with Jonathan. Notice three things. I want you to notice, first off, he loved David in his station of insignificance. Now, there again, we think of David. I mean, there's a long-storied history attached to the name David. We think of David, and we think of all the stories. I mean, every single... There's just about not a story in the life of David that has not become common in most Sunday schools. When we think of the life of David, we say, oh, we know all about it. But at this time, David was still just a shepherd boy of insignificance. Oh, he had stepped out onto the battlefield. He had, by God's help and God's grace, slain the giant. But but in all actuality, there was nothing about David that should include him in the royal court. There was no reason, there was no political advantage to Jonathan loving David. 
He was just an insignificant... He was so insignificant, even his daddy forgot about him when it was time to look for who was the next king of Israel. He was nobody from nowhere. There was no reason to believe that he would have... The Bible said, the Bible prophesied in the book of Deuteronomy that a lawgiver would come out of Judah. Isn't that right? That a scepter would rise and a lawgiver would come out of Judah. But evidently the nation of Israel did not believe that because when they crowned their first king, they crowned a Benjamite. Uh, they, they crowned Saul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin. They, they apparently did not have a grand concept that it should be from the tribe of Judah. In their minds, David uh, had no, no kingly material about his person or about his character. He was in a place of insignificance. Let me just drop a truth bomb on you. I don't know if that's pulpit language or not, but I said it. You know that God didn't save you because He needed you on His team? God didn't save you. I mean, he ain't, he ain't building a baseball squad. He didn't, he didn't save you because he needed a, you know, a good right fielder. He didn't save you because, listen now, he didn't save you because he saw that you'd really do something for him. Because even if you wouldn't do nothing for him, he still would have saved you. He saved you in your station of insignificance. Man, I look back at my life, and, I, and we all have our testimonies. Me and Brother Bill were talking on Friday. It's, it's beautiful the way... That all of our testimonies are different, but they're all the same. They all dovetail in accordance with the, with the Scriptures and with what the Word of God teaches. But man, I was a ten-year-old boy. I mean, I, there, there was nothing about me that would cause God to save me except His love and His grace. You know, that's why I have a problem. Let's just preach against Calvinism for a second. Let's just, because I don't want a church built on Calvinists. Amen? So let's preach on Calvinism for a second. You know, one of the things that offends me the most... About, some of you don't know what Calvinism is. God bless you. I'm not going to enlighten you. You don't need that baggage. But some of you know what I'm talking about. You know, the thing that offends me the most about Calvinism? This notion that God's a respecter of persons. This idea that God really wants some folks on His team, but others He's not concerned about. Oh, yes, we can read Scripture and we can see David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Oh, when Jonathan looked at him, he was just a little shepherd boy. He wasn't anyone important. i got news for you, friend. You may have been saved 45 years, baptized 16 times, joined 90 churches, but you're, you're still the same lost sinner you were when God found you. You're just redeemed by His grace. Oh, I, I listen, I don't have to qualify every statement. I know we ought to grow. You know that too. I know that God changes us. But for all practical intents and purposes, the only thing that keeps you from being out in the ditch, drunk with a needle in your arm, is the grace of God. It's the only thing. You'd still be in that state of insignificance. I want you to notice that he loved him in his state of ineffectiveness. I mean, what could David do for Jonathan? Man, we may just preach a whole series on Calvinism here in about 30 minutes. What could David do for Jonathan? He couldn't do anything for him. He couldn't help him in the royal court. In fact, they had nothing for him to do, so they stuck a harp in his hand and said, just play so that there's a reason for you to be here. What could he do for Jonathan? Well, I know that Saul would go on to make him a captain of armies. I kind of there again believe that Saul was looking for him to die in battle. God preserved him and God prospered him. But for Jonathan, in that moment, what could David do? He couldn't help him. And let me tell you something this morning. I, this is one of them real encouraging messages. Let me tell you something. We all ought to strive to serve God. 
We all ought to strive to serve God, but we better be careful lest we start thinking that we're indispensable to this thing. I mean, I, I understand God raises people up for time periods. I understand. I've heard the messages. I've sat in the conferences. I've heard how that God raises folks up for such a time. I mean, I, I've heard it. I've heard it. But let me tell you something. If you won't get right with God, God will use the person down the road from you. God uses folks with a humble heart. David couldn't do anything for him, but that didn't matter. He was a man after God's own heart. And so his soul was knit with Jonathan's. He loved him in his state of ineffectiveness. But let me say that he loved him in his status as an enemy. Really, David was a threat to the throne of Jonathan. Don't you believe that? In fact, read your Bible. It wasn't Jonathan that occupied the throne. It was David that did. He was an enemy. There was no reason to believe that, that, that Jonathan would not take his head clean off of his shoulders because he was a threat to his throne. And let me tell you something. I like this. As time went on and as David began to accrue influence, Jonathan just loved him more. Jonathan just loved him more. As he began to be a greater threat to his throne, Jonathan just loved him more. Can I say this? There's nothing we can ever do to make God stop loving us. So I've messed up. Well, join the club. Climb out of the rut. Join the club. You've messed up. I've messed up. I don't care who you are. There's nobody in here whose hands are clean. We've all made mistakes. We've all sinned. We've all done unrighteously. And if you thought this thing was about God saving you because you was really a star player, because you could be a help to Him, you had it all wrong in the first place, friend. It's by grace and grace alone. When God loved you, you were an enemy to Him. That's what the Bible says. It says friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You were His enemy. You, I, oh, I know. I mean, listen, I, I know what some of you got saved at a young age in here and you're saying, well, I wasn't all that, you know, I wasn't all that rebellious. I wasn't all that. Let me tell you something. God caught you earlier down the road than He caught some other folks. But you would have been there just like I would have been there. I was headed that way. I've told this before, but I'll share it again, that, that you can tell the difference in, in a slight change, not by the beginning of, a, of the trajectory of an object that's launched, but by the ending of that trajectory. You know, the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes says that greater is the end of a thing than the beginning. And I look at people that I went to school with, man. I look at people that, that I went to church with, people that sat in the same church that I did, people that sat in the same uh, Bible studies and Bible lessons and the same services that I sat in. They hardened their heart and they turned from God. Today their life is in wreckage because they pushed God away. And the only difference in my life is that I was willing to accept the Lord and let Him change my life. That's the only difference. I was headed that way, same way you were headed that way. So let's not get climb up on that high horse and think for one moment that because God saved us at a young age that we weren't His enemy. You remember what the psalmist said in Psalms, I believe it's 137. It's a psalm of captivity. And, and he says this, he's talking about how that they hang their harps upon the trees, how that those that carried them away captive demanded mirth of them and a song of them. And it's this, this heart-wrenching psalm about them being carried into captivity. And you know what the, the psalmist says? He talks about the Babylonians that were carrying them in captivity. And he says, Happy shall he be that dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Boy, that's, that's hard preaching. Amen. 
You know why he said that? Because he understood this truth. Little Babylonians grow up to be big Babylonians. Let me tell you something. God may have saved you when you was young. He saved me when I was young. But little sinners grow up to be big sinners. Lost children grow up to be lost adults if they don't get saved by the grace of God. You were His enemy. I was His enemy. There was no reason to believe that God shouldn't have took my head off, friend. No reason to believe I shouldn't be in hell with my neck broke this morning. I was the enemy of God. I was a threat to His throne. I had a heart of rebellion. I had a plan for revolution. There was no reason to believe that God wouldn't strike me down. But the Bible teaches that on Calvary, Christ became what I was so that I could become what He was. And when God looked upon Him, He drew back His almighty hand. And the book of Isaiah chapter 53 says that Christ was smitten of God. God struck a death blow to the Son of God. For you and I, God judged Him as His enemy so that we could be made the righteousness of God in Him. We see it's an uncomplicated love. I want you to notice the second thing. It's an uncomplicated love, but I want you to notice that it's an uncommon love. This is a love like there had never been before. And in fact, the Bible is very explicit to tell us. I mean, this love, this wasn't just, just like the love between, between two friends. It wasn't even just as, as deep and as strong as the love between a man and a woman. I mean, this was a love that, could we use this term? This was a supernatural love. This was a love, again, what does the Bible say? John 15, 13, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. David wasn't a friend to Jonathan, or shouldn't have been until Jonathan expressed love towards him. It was a supernatural love. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 1, we've already touched on it, but David is giving the eulogy, so to speak, over Jonathan. He says, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me, for thy love was wonderful. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Uh, Let me tell you something. You'll never experience a love like the love of God. You will never experience a love like the love of God. There is no love that, that, that is, is a peer to the love of God. I understand, man. We get this thing about love mixed up. Sometimes we think that love is a feeling. Well, that, you know, single people think that. <laughs> Married people know better. I've often said this, that marriage is the beautiful union of two people putting up with each other. It's easy, man. I, I, and I've married several kids, and, and I've married old people. And it, it doesn't matter. Be married six times and, and be 85 years old. doesn't matter. There's always a honeymoon period. Always a time when they can do no wrong. Always a time. And then reality hits. And they find out that their love that, that had been broad but shallow now has to run deep and has to run strong. The, 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 the tree that had grown so, so tall, now it's got to start growing roots into the ground if it's going to withstand the storms and the hard times. And it's there that the strength of a marriage is measured. Not when things are going well. It's easy when things are going well. But during the difficult times, that's when the strength of a marriage is truly tested and is truly manifest. And in the same way, let me say that the love of God, I mean, the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven being like unto a mustard seed that grows up under a great and mighty tree. I'm thankful that the love of God can reach to the highest heights, aren't you? 
I'm glad there's nobody that's too righteous for the love of God uh, or too self-righteous. We all the time, we're worried about the folks uh, that are the down and outs. Uh, but sometimes we ought to worry about those that are the up and the ends because God loves Pharisees too. You know that? God loves Pharisees too. Just like he loved the public and he loved the Pharisee too. I'm glad that it can grow so high. But let me tell you something. I'm glad that the oh, I'm glad that the love of God runs deep. I'm glad when I fail him, he still loves me. It's not about a feeling. It's about a faithfulness. The love of God is not measured by a feeling. It's measured by his faithfulness. Does he throw you away when you mess up? The Bible says he doesn't. Does he? Does he like like most potters would when the clay is marred? Does he cast it? To the side, does he melt it down? Does he do away with it so that he can get another? No, the Bible says that he takes it and he forms it afresh and anew. I'm glad when we mess up, he don't mess up. I'm glad when we give up, he don't give up. We see it's a supernatural love. I want you to notice the second thing about this love. I want you to notice that it was a sacrificial love. Look at what it says there in verse number 3. The Bible says, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own Soul And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. Again, this love is measured by the sacrifice that Jonathan has given. Jonathan was willing to do without so that David could have what he needed. That's uncommon in this world that we live in. You know what is common in this world that we live in? I'll love you as long as I can love me at the same time. I'll love you as long as I can love me at the same time. I've seen marriages fall apart. Listen carefully. I've seen marriages fall apart, not because people were too uncompatible, but because they were just too selfish. Just too selfish. Funny thing about it, man, we have have ideas about marriage today that they didn't have 150, 200 years ago. There, there was folks 150, 200 years ago. I mean, you'd, ha- you'd have a mama with six kids and the daddy would die uh, through the winter. And then you'd have a daddy with four kids and the mama would die during childbirth. They'd see each other and see that they could meet each other's needs. And they'd get married. Love wasn't even talked about, friend. They just had to make it through the winter. But they knew what it was uh, to be selfless and to be sacrificial. They knew that if that thing was going to work, they had to put their des- uh, desires aside. They had to do something to make it work. Nowadays, folks turn on the radio, hear some sorry, sad country music song, walk off, leave their spouse. God help us. Love is measured by sacrifice. Jonathan said, I'll do without so that you can have. Oh, on that dark day that Christ walked up the road to Calvary, he made the ultimate sacrifice. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For God hath made him to be sin. Oh, man, we can just stop there and preach for days. God, He didn't just bear your sin. He became your sin. He became your sin. I I, I mean, he, he He didn't just bear it. God looked at Him and it turned God's stomach. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe you know, heaven's going to straighten out a lot of my theology. I'm conv- I'm willing to admit that. But I, I kind of wonder if part of the reason it turned dark wasn't because that the sun turned its back on Him that hung upon the cross. I wonder if part of it wasn't because God had to hide His face from the darkness and unrighteousness that Christ had to become when He became your sin and my sin. For He hath made Him to be sin for us. That who knew no sin, man, He, he had never sinned once. 
He didn't deserve an ounce of Calvary that we... Say, who's we? Well, put your name there. Put your name there, because my name's there too, that we. You say, who's we, preacher? Well, right now, that we, that's me and you. We. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I want you to see that it was a supernatural love. I'm trying to hurry, but man, I just love preaching on the love of God. Is that okay? Amen. I mean, Shoney's open all night. Is that okay? It's a supernatural love. It's a sacrificial love. But I want you to see that it was a secure love. I like this. We see that it was an unconditional love. Look at verse number 3. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. We see the covenant that was made. It was a covenant of friendship. You know, the Bible does not necessarily give us uh, different categories of, of covenants for the most part. I mean, there's a couple of examples... But by and large, the Bible does not necessarily go and say, well, this is how the covenant of salt is done. And the Bible speaks about a covenant of salt. Or this is how the the covenant of friendship, or so on and so forth. And that's because there are certain qualities, the important qualities, that were universal to all covenants. And a covenant was always something that was secured by blood. That was the only way a covenant could be secured. Blood had to be shed. Here's the beautiful truth. I'm trying to think of how I want to preach this. Somebody needs to quit putting this fly swatter up here, because if I get in a big way, I might hit someone with it. Amen? (laughs) Or a fly. In Genesis chapter number 15, we have a very unusual thing that takes place. God is reconfirming the covenant with Abraham. It's in chapter 15 that the Bible says that righteousness is imputed unto Abraham. God does something very unique in that passage. Typically, a covenant would take place in this way. They would take whatever animals were to be sacrificed. They would flay these animals into two pieces. They would lay them in parallel lines next to each other. And then typically, the two people that were entering the covenant would join arms or join hands, and they would walk the length and the breadth of that covenant oftentimes while declaring the conditions or the promises of that covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two people. And so this was a symbol that they had passed through the blood, through the giving of life, and that they were committed to the keeping of this promise one to another. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 15 that God commanded Abraham to prepare everything for a covenant. Abraham goes and he gets the animals and he flays them in two pieces and he lays them side by side. Then something very unusual happens. The Bible says that God allowed a horror of darkness to fall over Abraham. Abraham falls asleep. He had spent all day driving the birds away. You say, what's that indicative of, preacher? Well, for for 2,000 years, God's law spent all day driving the birds away until the covenant could be made. Because Abraham is put into a sleep and into a darkness. When he wakes up, he sees a very unusual sight. He he sees a burning lamp and a smoking furnace floating in the air, passing in the middle of this sacrifice. I know, look at me like I'm crazy. Read your Bible sometime, it's in there. Passing through the midst of this sacrifice. You say, what was that, preacher? That's where God 
The book of Hebrews says it this way. When God could swear by no greater, He swear by Himself, saying, In blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thee. That by two immutable things, well, there's only two thing, or there's only one thing that's immutable in this word, and that's God. So how do you have by two immutable things? God made a covenant with Himself and brought Abraham into that covenant. That it might be the book of Galatians teaches by faith and not by works. Covenant is only as good as the two people that have made the promise. Abraham might break his covenant. The Bible says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Whose flesh? Our flesh. We couldn't keep the law. We couldn't keep the covenant. The Bible says that God sent forth His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemned sin in the flesh. God said, you've got to keep my law. Man said, we can't keep your law. God said, I'll send my son, and he'll be the perfect law keeper. The Bible says that he kept every jot and every tittle of the law. I mean, there wasn't a comma, there wasn't an apostrophe that Christ didn't fulfill entirely and in completion. You say, what does that have to do with me, preacher? Well, upon Calvary, God allows a great horror of darkness to fall upon the sinner. His old man is nailed to the cross. And the righteousness of God is imputed under that lost, poor sinner. And he's brought into this covenant that God has made with himself by faith. And righteousness is imputed unto him. And now our righteousness is as secure. Our salvation is just as secure as the promises of God. Because let me tell you something, neighbor. If God has saved you, then for Him to lose you, He'd have to break His Word, the very fabric of this universe. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. Listen to me. If God let me lose my salvation, if God lost me, the stars would fall out of the skies, the earth would boil over, the sea would catch on fire... God is the very foundation of this world. Look at a world that's still spinning. When I look at a sky that's still blue and grass that's still green, it reminds me that God will never leave me nor forsake me. I've got a covenant salvation. Salvation by His covenant, not by my covenant. We see the covenant that was made. I want you to notice this. We see the consciousness that was in this love. Look what it says in... Verse number 3 again. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. It doesn't say that he loved him because he made a covenant. It says he made a covenant because he loved him. The Bible calls Christ the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He didn't start loving you at Calvary. He expressed his love towards you at Calvary. He loved you before Calvary ever took place. In the mind of God, Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Listen to me. Calvary wasn't an audible that was called after a failure in the garden. It was always the redemptive plan of God for mankind. I mean, listen, Adam had innocence. Innocence would be a wonderful thing. But can I tell you something? My little boy, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I look at my little boy, and he—I mean, he's innocent. He's asleep right now. He looks real innocent. You wait till he wakes up. 
I, I see innocence in a little child. You know what I mean? That little child ha- has, a, has a, a joy about them because of their innocence. Man, they don't know what's going on. They don't know our country's going down the tube. They don't know terrorists cutting people's heads off. They don't know that gas... Is, well, gas actually ain't too bad today. I gassed up this morning. They don't know that a gallon of milk costs $45. They don't know these things. So there's a simple joy in their life. But can I say, listen carefully, I wouldn't trade the joy I have for the joy he has. You see, he don't know why anyone shouldn't love him. I know that nobody should love me, but somebody does. He don't know there's anything wrong. Man, I know everything was wrong, but he made everything right. There's a joy that surpasses innocence. We see the consciousness that God had. And I'll show you one more thing. I'll hush if you believe that. I want you to see the character of this love. He loved him how? As his own soul. As his own soul. What a second-rate love. Every one of us, to some greater or lesser degree, we love ourselves more than anyone else. We don't want to admit that. The world says we've got a self-esteem problem. The Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. So every one of us, we love ourselves. But do you understand that, the, that, that when God looks at me and you, He loves us just as He loves Himself? Do you understand when God looks at you, He doesn't, he doesn't just see the blood. I know we sing the song, and I like the song. Let me tell you something. If you let theology mess up your gospel singing, you're never going to have a good time. Amen? I understand. You, I can pick apart any, any gospel song you want to find. I'll find something. I understand. We sing, when I see the blood... Well, I'm glad that he sees the blood, but can I just give you a little bit better theology than that? He don't see the blood. He sees his son. He sees his son. He's not having to look back at the blood. He sees his son when he sees us. Justified, redeemed, made righteous in him. That's what justification is, you know. Justification is not just as if I'd never seen it. Sounds cute, looks good on a shirt, I get it. That's not what justification is. I don't have what Adam had. I've got something far greater than Adam had. I've got, when God sees me, He sees me as standing in the stead of His own Son. Oh, what a love God has for us. Say, preacher, I don't always feel like God loves me. Well, welcome to the club. Every one of us goes through periods of time. I'm spiritual enough to admit it, or carnal enough one. I have times like that. I have days like that. Say, God doesn't love me. How could God love me? I ain't figured that part out yet, but I believe the Word of God when He tells me that He does love me. And it's not measured by our feelings. Oh, feelings come this way, feelings go. Some of y'all are going to go out, eat some Mexican food, have some real funny feelings later. Aren't you thankful you're not trusting those to get you to heaven? It's not about your feelings. It's about His faithfulness. Has He been as good to you as He was on the day He saved you? I'd say He still loves you. He's still pursuing you when you try to get away from Him like Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Oh, He chases after me and I can't figure it out, but it tells me He loves me. Sometimes we get to feeling as though God has no concern for us. I've been there. But can I tell you something? Before God's love for you could ever wane or could ever subside, the universe would have to unravel because He's given us this promise that He'd never leave us nor forsake us. He loves us as much today as He ever has. 
He'll love us as much tomorrow as He ever will. Aren't you thankful for the love of God?